This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car has been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. It's seldom that you find two kind of undiscovered great cars sitting in garages, the dust covers taken off since uh, since the 80s. And that's what makes this so interesting. The deeper you look, you pull those covers off and you find 1965 289 Cobra competition car with stage 3 engine with just 4,000 some miles on the uh, on the odometer and next to it is a 67 427 Cobra big block and find out that it was a movie star uh, that it is the Cobra from the gumball rally and you start looking at clips from the gumball rally and you start to realize why it's such a such an icon get ready for fun the gumball rally has begun the gumball rally and here these two are sitting inches from each other where had they have sat keeping each other company actually from the 70s and the more you look at the story the more interesting it uh, uh, it becomes hi everybody this is David Hobbs racing driver and speed commentator and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We're live, and you're tuned into the South Radio and Cars. I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google, TantTalk1340.com, and you can see us. Actually, can't see us. You can hear us live here at the studios. Actually, not even the studios, because we're live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Yes, it's Scottsdale Car Week. And I am live at Gooding Car Auction. And uh, let me tell you guys something. Talk about beautiful weather, no humidity. We're walking around in our T-shirts. It's a wonderful time. There's six auctions going on this week. It's absolutely insane with all the kind of car stuff that's going on here. You've got the Gooding auctions. You've got the RM auctions. You've got the Russo and Seal auctions. You've got Silvers. You've got Bonham's auctions. You've got Barrett Jackson. Did I name all six of them? I think that's pretty close. But anyway, we're doing the show live from Gooding's auctions. And I'm sitting here with one of the representatives, an automotive specialist, from Gooding and Company, his name is Garth Hammers. Garth, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and tell us a little bit about this fun, amazing car field week. Well, thanks for having me. Um, we are really excited to be uh, at Scottsdale again. This is our seventh annual Scottsdale sale. Uh, each one has been a little better than the last. This one, I think, is going to be really a lot of fun. Um, citywide, for those of you who have been here before, there's something for everyone, and even at, just here at the Gooding Auction, I feel like we have something for everyone. We're, we're definitely skewed to the to the high end of things, but what we really want is the finest example of every car, whether it's uh, a Duesenberg or a, or a TR6. We want the best one that we can possibly find to bring in uh, to offer for sale. How many cars are you guys running this way? Just short of 120. It's exactly the size we want. So typically, Gooding Auctions, which I like a lot, and I've covered you guys before. A sports car market as an auction analysis, but it seems that you run between 100 and 125 cars. Is that kind of your comfort level as far as the overall layout of the auction? That's really right where we want to be because our auction is spread over two days this coming Friday and Saturday, and we like to be sales sessions to a, a more manageable length. See every car 
and and you don't have uh, it goes by in no time really. Come and see sixty bots and uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, now you're an automotive specialist. Tell us a little bit about what makes Garth an automotive specialist. Well, people think that, uh, this is a bit of a dream job. They say that it is, and I have to agree with them. I, I have my dream job. Um, I go out and find cars for the auctions. Uh, keep in touch with collectors. Go to car events. Uh, Walk up to the uh, to the exhibitor at a car show who has uh, the nicest gullwing or the you know the, the um, finest Corvette like that and, and strike a conversation and, and I'll tell you the stories that you hear from one side of the country to the other in terms of people who own these cars that's such a thrill make those connections hear the stories and then and if they do decide that it's time for them to sell their car and they sign it with us so it's a real thrill to put that story in print and then watch the car come up and do well on the auction block. To be in your position, how helpful is it to be a true car person? Does it help you a lot? You have to be a car person. You just have to be. I've had people ask me just around the auction site as we're as we're putting things together what you have to know, and I you scarcely know where to start. You have to just maybe even brought up in it, and I certainly was. Um, my dad, car collector, uh, I, I grew up born in the mid '60s and. Throughout the whole 70s, my, my dad collected cars. He really liked 300 SL Gullwings and Roadsters and European plastic. You have to start somewhere. And then, and then uh, you know, there were always some car books around. And I, I paid off with those to go spend hours and uh, you know, learn about lesser-known marks. And um, you're always learning. Once you, once you become a, a student of it, and I was when I was five years old, riding in a Gullwing, when you're five, really kind of in print self on your DNA, and, and you just want to be around cars more and more. And that, that was certainly a, a galvanized car for me. Let me just ask you a question, and myself being a car guy, and, and, and anybody outside of our little realm, our little world, may not relate to this, but would you say that when you go get next to a car, that a car kind of talks to you, it has an attitude, you can kind of befriend it in some sort of mystical way that the car will tell you a story and you can really get into it and you have this little bond, this little relationship. Does that make any sense? Have you ever experienced that? I really have. Uh, over and over, actually. Uh, one particular story comes to mind. I had a container some years ago, uh, three or four years ago, for our Pebble Beach auction. We had a Type 57 Scotty that had been owned by its Ford Bugatti. We, we know that he drove it. And uh, and then the car went on to be a, a test car for some of their later models. And all of the the, uh, the factory test guys had spent time with the car, and the things that they had changed were still there. That car really spoke to me. It was, it was, uh, there was a real presence to that to that car. And the consigner, who became a friend of mine, he saw it in me uh, when, we, when we went to the hangar when the car was restored. He could tell that I was back by it. Um, and just every, on any given day, I'll go see a collection, and there, there, this car that you can tell has a special story. And almost always it does, and, and the, uh, the owner is all too happy to, to tell the story. You said earlier we talked a little bit, and you have some of your own projects. Tell about some of the cars that you're working on. Well, I was fortunate enough a year and a half ago to buy the car that got me into cars. Um, in the early 70s, my, my dad bought a 59 Austin Healey. 106 that had been pretty heavily modified, actually. The, the, the nose changed to look a little bit like a cross between a 289 Cobra and a, uh, a uh, 250 Testarossa. So it extended out a little bit. The windshield was cut down. Uh, it has Barani wire wheels on it. And it was campaigned pretty heavily on the show circuit in the early 70s. Um, we owned it for just maybe a year and a half, two years. Sold it. And I never, ever forgot it. And managed to track the guy down and we sold it two thirty seven years later and I've now bought it back. Great store. It had not been driven since the late seventies. And uh every mile I put on it now is just a, a huge thrill. Nothing can change on it. It's still exactly the car that it was, just a little crustier, which I don't find at all. It's, it's part of the story. That car talks to me. Is it a BN or BT? It's a oh it's a uh, a BN a BN space. So it's a two sitter. Yes. Okay, that's that's good to have. Yeah. Now Tell us a little bit about what you do in between auctions. You mentioned that you go around, you go to car shows, you go to other events, mm -hmm. and you kind of network a little bit. So is your job primarily to kind of find cars that will that are basically candidates to be here at uh, Goodings Auction? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of my favorite questions. What do you guys do between auctions? I always get a kick out of that. They're thinking that, well, we're, we're traveling to the sales site and we're learning what we have in the auction. They, they, they are. <laughs> uh, but in fact, we've spent the last several months pulling these cars into the auction one by one. 
researching their histories and speaking with the owners and, and then photographing each car, writing about each car, proofreading all of that, publishing a catalog, that's, uh, that fills the time between auctions. And we, uh, we really have a ball doing it. Every single person who works for Gooding & Company really enjoys what they do, and I think it shows in all, all areas. So basically just that, that interval between auctions is really a full-time job. Oh, absolutely. Every day that we're we're speaking with with someone who has uh, an exclusively restored XK122 or uh, an AC2300 Alpha Zagano, uh, uh, there's just really never a dull moment. Uh, you don't know what uh, what call is coming next, or uh, or what side road you're going to you're going to take on a on a trip. See a few people you know, and then you know you're going to meet a few people you don't know. All right, a question I have, and I run into this myself as an appraiser, is you can't know everything about every car. So how much research do you have to do before you go look at each car? I mean, now that you've been doing this for a while, obviously you're seasoned to some extent. But would it be fair to say that you've got to take some time on your own to kind of research these cars so you know you yourself know what you're looking for? Or do you actually go and from the outside bring in experts to go along with you to look at those cars individually before you make the decision to represent them and so forth? Um well, there are mark experts out out there, and we do consult with them generally on the specific history of a, of a car that we're looking at by the chassis. Where's this car been? What competition history does it have? Who drove it? How well did they do? And how much of that car that went around the track is still there? Am I going to see when I when I arrive at the uh, city airport and drive to the house? How much of that original historic car is still there? And that's that's fairly well known. Um, and that's where there's where the research comes in, where we're, we're photographic numbers on transmissions and, and rear end. Uh, but cars that have a thick file of history and correspondence and invoices, that's always a lot of fun. You wind up uncovering things that uh, sometimes uh, happily, sometimes surprise. But each each car is its own journey. What do you think? As far as the market, for example, where do you, I mean, some amazing prices, some overwhelming prices have been paid for cars here in the last six to eight months. Share some of your thoughts on that. Well, I think it's a strong market, a very strong market, and, and we see a lot of new collectors coming, and they have advisors with who have been in the hobby for a long, long time. There's a pretty steep learning curve, like we talked about a minute ago. They'll come in and, and look at a select group of cars, maybe that chosen in conjunction with their advisor, and they'll come in and, and, and have a, a close look. But uh, we see a lot of enthusiasm and new enthusiasm coming in, and they're not making any more of these cars. And the more collectors there are, the fewer there are to go around. Cars at the very high end, the um, Ferrari 250 short wheelbase alloy competition car with all of its original parts having been driven at the at all the right races, podium finishes. You know, there there are very few of those cars, and they are very highly fought over when they do come for sale. And I don't see that uh, changing. The cars have established themselves as very valuable assets. Better the history, the more valuable. Do you find that the new buyers that are coming in, and some of these people paying these amazing prices, are they? Do you find that they're real car enthusiasts, or do you find that maybe some of them might be speculators, and they might be looking at it from an investment perspective? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? What's been your experiences? I think there are definitely quite a number of both. Okay. In terms of collectors coming coming in, I think the Gooding and Company tends to attract real enthusiasts. We are enthusiasts ourselves, um, but uh, we know that uh, that some, some some cars are sold in terms of investment first. But I think that's that's the rarity. I think that these are real enthusiasts who obviously have to have to keep an eye on what uh, what they think is going to happen with the values, but cars first, and then we really like to see. What do you think sets Gooding apart from? Let's say your competitors. Well, Gooding and Company does three auctions a year. We do uh, an auction here in Scottsdale, beginning of January, um, and then we're in Amelia Island not seven weeks later with another auction out there, and then uh, in March, March seventh this year, and then we're out in Pebble Beach in August, where we started in 2004. And with that schedule, we're we're able to more fully vet every car coming in than we would be able to if we if we had half a dozen or seven or eight auctions. That's really where we want to be. We want to be the size that we are. I think that our customers really see that when they when they come to the cars that we have. I've heard just a couple of times today that they feel that we have we have the best cars of anyone, and we know where that comes from. Very careful. We do a lot of research in advance. Be sure that we're finding really high quality cars. Give us a couple of examples of some of the really cool 
cars you have that you'll be featuring this weekend? Well, we have a uh, really one of my favorites, uh, a uh, 250 GT Ferrari Series 1 Integrated Spider, Series 1 PS Cabriolet. Uh, they built 40 of them. Uh, a number of people have looked at it. Is that a Cal Spider? Well, it looks a lot like a California Spider, but there's, there's a certain refinement these uh, Series 1 PS caps. 58, 59. The real pretty blue one this year? Yes. With yeah. covered headlights? Covered headlights. Gorgeous, gorgeous car. Two little bumperettes up front. All 40 of them were a little bit different. Um, obviously, colors and interior appointments, that sort of thing. Some of them had side vents. Some of them had little bumperettes. Others had a conventional bumper all the way across the front. Some of them were set up a bit different engine-wise. Um, this particular car is just coming out of very long-term ownership. Uh, it did 10 Colorado Grands almost in a row. Very, very active. Uh, collector who had the car, a real enthusiast. We're expecting four to five million dollars on that car. Just as you walk into our reception, there's a '97 um, McLaren F1 GTR long tail uh, competition car there in the middle of the room with a chandelier hanging over in bright lights. That car has a presence about it that goes well beyond the uh, even a, a, a standard McLaren F1, if you possibly call that standard. Um, we did sell a road car at, at Pebble Beach just this last year. This car, in its in its Fina racing livery uh, and very minimal cockpit, just a fantastic car. It is. It was. It's. Uh, it posted the first real wins for the Baron team, the BMW Motorsport wins at Hockenheim and Helsinki. Uh, a really significant car, and it, it's, uh, it sure grabs your attention just as you come in the door. There are a couple of gull wings, uh, which I always like to see. It goes back to my roots. We have two 1956 300SL coupes. Uh, both are black with a red interior. One has been impeccably restored uh, and is, a, is a, a show winner already. Just a thrill to drive. I've got a few miles in that car, and it takes me back. And then we have one, a very significant car, um, a bit of a barn. Originally black red, still has its original black paint. you got to wonder how many how many gull wings are out there with original paint, 15, 20, out of the 1,400 that they made. With its original red interior, the uh, original headliner is kind of taking down a bit. Just glorious. Tell that it's been, you know, it, it was a, uh, a very well-loved car, uh, but it's been parked for a long time. And it's a real thrill to see that. I'd like to drive it as an end and take it to a show because I think you get a lot of attention with a car with 30 years of dust on it. Just to digress for a second, what are your thoughts on barn finds and leaving a car like that original, as close to original as possible? I think if a car is original, after all this time, it should be less original. You mean they're complete and a little on the edgy side? I'd almost say especially if it's a little on the edgy side, because you can see the car's history. It's like you like said, a car talking to you. A, a car can't speak as clearly sometimes if it's, if it's been fully restored. So you have to you have to look up the history. You can't just look at it or ask it, so to speak. You know, um, it tells a story. Definitely tells a story. Part of a panel discussion last night where the, that same question was asked, and um, you're talking about the definition of a preservation car. And at some shows, it's very stringent. You can't have more than five percent new paint. They're they're serious. They want it. They want a car to be original to come into that class. They're real rarities, and I think at this point we should save them. Okay. So let's say, for example, there's a car that I saw out there, and it was a, uh, I would say, like a early 62, 63 TR3, the green one out there. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that car. And I have a little experience with that car, because when I was in uh, at uh, Options America earlier this year at Fort Lauderdale, I had the opportunity of covering that uh, option for sports car market, and I actually wrote a little article on it. So I'm curious as to what happened to that car from then till now, and maybe you have a little history on the Tesla about it. Well, that's a really interesting car. Just, just visually, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting piece. It's been, it's been set up for uh, for rallies. It was analog stopwatch on the dash and a hollow speed pilot, and um, it's been with a hard top, and through the hard top is a searchlight that uh, they, can, they can be aimed around, of course, with uh, with, with driving light front as well. Um, so it's it's built in homage to the cars that ran um, uh, RST rallies um, and in the colors of the original works rally team. We we looked at it and just thought, that's, that's a really unique piece. What do you think the car will do? What's the well, we have it estimated at $55,000 to $75,000. It will sell to the highest bidder. We, we find that with cars that are offered without reserve, they probably sell a good bit higher quite often. 
Let me just share a little something with you on that particular car. I had the good fortune of talking to the owner, and he was very proud of that car. He was a British car collector and builder. And he built that car with the intention to replicate the rally car, as you stated. Yes. So, having said that, the car technically would have a theme, correct? A rally car. It's got kind of a theme to it. It's just kind of like a road race car or a drag car. There's like a theme to it, okay? So, it's kind of a recreation of the way. Do you feel that theme cars, a car that replicates a drag car, replicates a road race car, replicates a rally car. Do you think those cars create an unusual uh, interest to buyers because they're so they're different? I think so. I think there's a, there's a real um, there's a group out there that really appreciates that, okay. that sort of thing. And if you're going to take a car to a show, it's nice to stand out and have a story of why it. So in this particular case, uh, it was it was built like in the colors of the Works Rally team. And there's there's a lot to that. That's going to draw a crowd. And it, mm-hmm. and it's about the experience of being on the lawn with your car on the day and the conversations you have. Um, you know, you'll, you'll win a trophy and you'll take the trophy home and, and appreciate it. But you're going to remember taking part in the show really more than anything. When, when you have a car that, that has a story that a lot of people can ask you about, you're going to meet some interesting people yourself. And that's a lot of crux of the hobbies. Car by car, event by event, uh, just out having fun with like-minded people. Super. Well, Garth, I want to thank you for taking a few moments to share with us and our listeners here at Nostalgic Radio on Cars. I know you've got some work to do. We are going to take a commercial break here. Cedric, how are we doing on time? Uh, we're, we're only about the halfway point. Okay, super. I'll tell you what to do. Let's go to a song. Let's play that really cool... Beatles song. How about uh, Can't Buy Me Love, since we're talking about cars, and then I'm going to bring on a really cool English gentleman to share some amazing stories with us and his experiences here at Gooding Auction. So, hey, you join us in the South Radio Cars, and we will be right back. Hey, this is Wayne Carini from Chasing Classic Cars, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Can't buy me Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for 
or takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. What was that? The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Again. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. I think she's got it. I think she's got it. The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. By George, he's got it. By George, he's got it. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that soggy plain? In Spain, in Spain. The rain rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Bravo! The rain in Spain stays mainly in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly happen. How kind of you to let me come. Now once again, where does it rain? On the plain, on the plain. And where's that blasted plain? In Spain, in Spain. No rain. Hey, we're back to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and we are live here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I'm sitting here, I'm at Tooting Auction in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I'm delighted to welcome to the show my next guest. He's got classic British wit. Charlie Ross, the amazing auctioneer, well-known worldwide for getting auctions. How are you doing this evening, Charlie? What an intro. I must say, I'm flattered. I'm doing well, thank you. Very well, indeed. Yeah. So, you're back in the States? Good to be on here. It feels like home now, you know. Yeah. The sun is shining. It's like being back in London. So, tell us a little bit about Charlie Ross. What does Charlie Ross think about bidding auction? And you've been with them for how many years now? Well, it's 10 years. So last year was the 10th anniversary of Gooding and Company. So I've been doing auctions for 10 years for David Gooding. And we've had several auctions a year over that period. And I have to say, I've been the lucky chap to auction every single one of those cars. And I think we're about to touch a billion dollars. So amazing. It's been quite remarkable for me. It's been a complete life change for me, a career change I couldn't have ever envisaged. You know, I started off in England selling all sorts of bits and bobs, and I end up here selling millions of dollars of cars, and it's just so exciting, I can't tell you. But, you know, I have to congratulate David Goody because he's done an amazing job at the auction. But you have become the face of Goody. 
Well, some people tell me that, and I'm really very flattered to, uh, to have that tag attached to me, really, because uh, when I first came here, and I was really rather terrified. I don't think David knew when he employed me, and he'd certainly never seen me in the flesh, live, auctioning. So it was a brave step by David to take, to get this chap from the sticks of England, fly him over here. I didn't tell him at the time. I'd never been to America before. Really? Well, in California. So I just uh, bit the bullet, picked up my suitcase, flew out to California and thought, this is something else. Kept pinching myself. Is this true? Came into this wonderful marquee, came to Pebble Beach. There were these amazing cars. And one of the cars in that very first sale was the Duesenberg Mormon Meteor. It's become a very famous car. And it sold for over $4 million. I don't think I'd sold anything for. I'd certainly never sold anything for one million, half a million, or even a hundred thousand. So, I mean, it was quite a step for me. And the thing I found most difficult when I started coming over here was using the word dollars, because I'd spent my life selling things in pounds. And I do remember, I think at the time, the exchange rate was about two to one. So... Two dollars to the pound, and I, I remember. And, and fortunately, most people that attend the um, the Gooding auctions have a fantastic sense of humour. And I remember selling a car, and I got to about two hundred and forty thousand dollars, and I was going for the first time at two hundred and forty thousand dollars, for the second time at two hundred and forty thousand dollars, for the third and the last time at two hundred and forty thousand pounds. I said pounds instead of dollars. And this guy stood up and he said, "Excuse me, sir, you just doubled my bid." <laughs> Which is like a cup of coffee afterwards. 
Shall we have a chat about this? Think about it. Uh, have a bit of popcorn. Come on. You want this car. And you know, the hand goes off again. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the hand goes off again. You do such an amazing job. And I've got to tell you, I've actually watched other people at other auctions, not to mention any names. But you know what? They try to emulate you. And some auctions have actually hired guys to emulate you. That's got to be flattering to you. Well, that's hugely flattering. I, I didn't know that that had happened. I, I do know that people have sat in the, in the back of the room making notes, but I, I didn't know what sort of notes they were making. <laughs> but it might be about the way I do it. But I would say this to any auctioneer starting out, don't try and copy anybody, because anything secondhand is never going to be as good as your own material. Now, if I come up with a witty line, Okay, it's witty for me, it might be witty for the people in the room. It is not going to be the same if it is replicated by somebody else. And I feel strongly about that. And I like to see people with their own style on the rostrum. Whether they be American, whether they be English, whether they be French, Italian, whatever. Stamp your own authority as an auctioneer and run with it. And people will warm to that. As I've said before, anything secondhand and regurgitated is never going to sound the same. Same whole truth for cards. Yeah. You're selling original one-off cards with certain provenance that was established features, let's say, for example, by those cars, by the designers, by the builders. The original. You're original. Well, it, it is easier, I think, strangely, the older you get. I think you get a certain confidence um, that comes with age, provided you don't get too old and start losing it, because it's quite a mathematical challenge while you're going along there. You know, fortunately, with, with high-value cars, we are probably selling 14, 15, 16 lots an hour. You know, sometimes when I'm selling furniture, or works of art, I can be selling 100, 150, at times 200 lots an hour. And working out the mathematics as you go along, a lot of people don't realize what, what you have on the rostrum with you. You, know, you have a, a huge amount of information. You obviously have what the car is. You have the lot number. You have who owns the car, which you are party to. Now, the owner might be in the room. You have a reserve price. You might have a discretion on that reserve price. It might be 10%. It might be 5%. You might be able to look at the vendor in the room, say the reserve's a million, you're struggling at 850. He might give you the nod. You need to know that's the owner giving you the nod, and it's not somebody bidding. <laughs> that's quite a difference. You also will probably have telephone bids on the, on the car in question. So you have to look at the telephones and make sure that they have connected with their potential buyer. You also might well have commission bids, absentee bids, which are bids from people that can't attend the auction and leave you a price up to which you can go. You don't start at that figure. You know, if we have a car reserved that's half a million dollars, you leave me a bid of a million dollars. If nobody bids more than half a million dollars, it's your car. I would hope, you know, and that's fair enough. It's your expertise that values it at a million dollars, not half a million, which perhaps we value it at. Would you say, in the 10 years that you've been working with Goody, have you contributed some of your ideas that you've seen in terms, like from your position sitting up there auctioning the cars, have you made any changes, implemented anything that would make the auction process a little bit better while you're up there, short of your personality and wit. That's interesting. I think they are, by and large, ahead of me in that regard. So um, we've had one or two things. I, I do have, nowadays, and I think other auctioneers do, a small monitor in front of me, which monitors the bidding. In, in the old days, you usually had a clerk next to you who wrote down the bids as you went along. Now, that's fine if you've got somebody next to you and you can refer back to the bid. Quite difficult if you're at $165,000 to then have a little bit of banter with somebody in the room. Say, do you want to go to 170? Do you want an next bid? Do you want an next bid? Do you like this card? And then you say, hang on, where was the bid? 165. You used to look at your clock. Of course, all the figures are up behind me um, in uh, dollars and yen and pounds and lira and was lira, now euros, of course. Um, so I now have this little screen so I can have any banter with anybody I like and I know that I've just got a glance back at the screen in front of me and I know where the latest bid is because there's somebody operating the bids as I go. Other than that, 
I don't think there's anything there. I make, obviously, my own notes on my own sheets, but they are party to me so that I can understand. And I think it wouldn't necessarily aid any other auctioneer. But with regard to the set out of the cars, the layout of the cars is fantastic. They do that so well. They do uh, the publicity so well. They do uh, the, the catering, the food, all the things that go with looking after the clients, the vendors, the seating plans. There's very little I can add to it. It's, it's, if I may say so, so much better than what I've been used to. to <laughs> <laughs> say it, but it's true. Now, are you often surprised? And some of the numbers. So let's just say, for example, like this is a Scottsdale auction. Yes. So let's just say like last year. Last year, Scottsdale generally sets the tone for the rest of the year. Yes. So now you've got Amelia Island in, in two, less than two months. Yeah. And then you've got Monterey about four months down over five months from there. So now I can honestly say myself, I've seen cars here, let's just say do three million. Yeah. I've seen them in Amelia do three and a half to four. Yes. And then by the time, midway through the year, it hits Monterey, the same cars... Close to ten million. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe exaggerating numbers a little bit, but they're significant. Does that just surprise the living daylights out of you sometimes? Yes, I mean individual cars do, because you can never. What did Churchill once say? Never trust an expert. <laughs> okay. I love that line. You know, never trust an expert. But, uh, of course, we trust the experts implicitly. But invariably, they will look at a car, they'll put a hard-nosed valuation on it, and they'll tell you what the car is worth. Like uh, a Monet painting or a Bugatti piece of furniture or a comfortable painting or a bit of um, jewelry by uh, a well-known maker. It's all based on precedent. What did the last one make? But as you so rightly pointed out here, no two cars are the same. They might have the same uh, year of manufacture. They might have broadly the same color. They've got the same engine, the same engine type. But it's not the same engine, is it? Each one is different. And when you get a car that flies, of course, it's the golden situation of two people that want that car. And people will say to me, oh, you paid too much for that car. What is too much for that car? If somebody has the money and they want the car, it's no good if it's a blue car then saying, well, hang on, there's a yellow one down the road, which is cheaper. He doesn't want the yellow one. You know, he doesn't want the two and a half litre. He wants the three and a half litre. He doesn't want the 1957. He wants the 1958. And so I think... Yes, we do get surprises, but there's a reason. You, I think you get very few people that just simply throw money at it for the sake of it. Most of them are pretty wise about their collecting, in my experience. So now, let's talk about Charlie Ross. Who is Charlie Ross? And where does Charlie Ross come from? What's your background? Yeah, and what got you into the auction? Well, pure chance. Charlie Ross was born in a little town called Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire in England. Charlie Ross went to school. Charlie Ross was no academic. Exams and Charlie Ross were not at one with one another. Uh, Charlie Ross had a very successful uncle who was a dentist, president of the International Dental Federation. Charlie Ross liked his surgery in London. Charlie Ross thought being a dentist would be just a bee's knees. Charlie Ross failed his exams. <laughs> Charlie Ross needed to do something. So I literally left school, joined a firm of estate agents and auctioneers in the wonderful old days when the firm of estate agents and auctioneers sold everything. They sold your house. They sold your car. They sold your furniture. They sold your land. They sold your cattle. They did the whole lot. Nowadays, it's been diversified, and, and you get specialists in each field. So I joined this firm, and uh, incidentally, the guy that employed me was a collector of cars. But it wasn't until much later in my career that I realized, you know, I had a bit of a love for cars and would end up selling wonderful cars. And on my very, very first day at work, he took me out, and I assumed we were going to value a house survey a house. No, no, no. We're going to pick up the P2. I didn't know what a P2 was. We drove to Newport Pagnell, famous, of course, for the Aston Martin motor car. And he put me in this Aston Martin DB4. Well, I've got an old minivan at the time, which normally wouldn't start. And if it did, it didn't go for far. You know. And uh, he took me in this Aston Martin DB4 to pick up the P2. The P2 was a Rolls-Royce Phantom too. Well, I'd never seen a Rolls-Royce. I'd never sat in a Rolls-Royce or an Aston Martin. When he got me there, and I was to 
collect his car with him. He realized he'd made a bit of a blunder because this 18-year-old had to drive one of his cars <laughs> to the office. So he came up with the cunning wheeze of, um, look, I'll drive the Rolls-Royce back and you follow in the Aston Martin, knowing that the Rolls wouldn't go faster than 50, and so I wouldn't be able to. Well, I was naughty enough to stall at the first set of lights, wait for five minutes, and then give it large in the Aston <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's not how I started auctioning. They had a market in Bletchley, and believe it or not, my first ever auction was of chickens. Pens of chicken, chicken pens with about four or five chickens. And these chickens were being sold by the pen. I don't distinctly remember the prices. You know, uh, in those days, pre-decimal, we had pounds, shillings, and pence. You probably wouldn't know about pounds, shillings, and pence, would you? Well, I actually was in England many yeah. years ago, so I was... You're old enough for that? You're not too young for that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> well, pounds, shillings, and pence. And these were making three shillings and sixpence or three shillings and ninepence per pen. And uh, I was obviously quite good at selling chickens because they promoted me to turkeys quite soon. <laughs> so I can remember selling something like 763 turkeys. Um, well, on one day, individually, uh, the week before Christmas. Uh, and then they had an antique sale room, so I went into the sale room there. And that's when I really got the love for Georgian furniture, silver, paintings, glass, china. And that's where my love is, particularly Georgian furniture and, and Victorian furniture. And so some years after that, I started my own auction room in Woburn, Bedfordshire, in the middle of uh, England, the seat of the Duke of Bedford, and my old sale room used to be the old town hall, wonderful quintessentially English building in predominantly Georgian market town, and I ran that sale room, owned that sale room for 25 years, uh, having the most wonderful, wonderful time, in clearing houses, going up into lofts, finding exciting, you know, opening a shoebox and finding a piece of porcelain uh, from the 18th century which made a lot of money. I just got too busy, um, what are we talking, six, seven years ago, um, I just got too busy doing David's sales, doing other sales. I do a huge amount of charity auctions. I do Russian art auctions in London. Uh, and the time came really to sell the sale room. So I sold the sale room. Somebody thankfully wanted it. It wasn't a big cash cow, I can tell you. It was more hard work than anything else, but it was good fun. Somebody's taken it over. And I now act purely as a freelance auctioneer throughout the world. How many auctions a year do you do? Probably a hundred. Yeah, yeah. What's the extent of your travels? I've just come from Australia. Now, that was largely holiday, but I did do a charity auction for Shane Warne, you wouldn't have heard of over here, I don't think, but he's about the most uh, famous Australian cricketer of all time, and more famous uh, recently for going out with Elizabeth Hurley, who no doubt you will have heard of. Uh, unfortunately, they've split up, but she and he invited me out to Melbourne to do their charity auction. He has a foundation out there, um, the Shane Warne Foundation, so I was able to build that in. Next month, I'm going to Cape Town, South Africa, to do a fine art sale, which I'm hugely looking forward to. I love Cape Town as a city. Um, the rest of myself tend to be uh, England-based. I go to Monaco every year to do a charity auction um, just on the Friday before the Monaco Grand Prix. They have a fashion show, and the auction is done outside around the pool in the harbour there. That's pretty cool for an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I know where you're going. Yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah, a lot, a lot of scenery, a lot of scenery, yes. <laughs> and uh, as I've said, I do a lot of charity auctions nowadays uh, for, I do you know, Elton John's um, White Time Tiara Ball, which is his big ball every year, which is hugely exciting and raises billions every year, um, and, a, and a lot of auctions like that. It's not to say I don't do tiny auctions at home for the local church, for the local operatic society. I'm involved with my wife in the Oxford Operatic Society, so we sing in shows and things. So when I have a bit of spare time... You sing. I do. In a choir. I do. Sing in a, yes, we, we sing in a small chamber choir, uh, which we sing in... Um, at weddings and, or sadly, funerals occasionally. Um, but I've done a, a lot of shows 
uh, at the Playhouse Theatre in Oxford. I think my, my favourite is playing um, Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady, which I've done three times, which uh, well, you I simply love. You didn't catch it, but we actually played My Fair Lady clip, and it was the, the rain in Spain, oh. mainly on the plane. But what what? Was, can I get back? <laughs> yeah, right. Because I was a big Rex Harrison fan, too. Oh, I was a child. Yeah. And his son, Noel Harrison, actually did the TV show Man from Uncle. Right. It's just a girl from Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. But yeah. Rex Harrison yeah. was an amazing actor. He, he was quite extraordinary. And of course, My Fair Lady made him. Absolutely made him. And nobody's quite done it like him. And people try and do it like him. People try to sing the part. People try to speak the part. But it's just that amazing way that he stamped his character on that part. And it is the most fantastic show, isn't it? It's a wonderful show. It's got fabulous tunes. It's got. And the great thing is, you know, the words are more or less lifted in their entirety from George Bernard Shaw's Big Lady. And, you know, the whole thing is very cleverly structured and put together. Now, since we're talking about Rex Harrison, yeah, and since we're talking about Carrock, he did a movie called The Yellow Rolls Royce. Mm. Has that Rolls Royce that was featured in that movie ever surfaced? And if so, wouldn't that be interesting for you to... That would be the car for me to sell. I can't answer the question. I dare say that someone like David Gooding would be able to answer the question. But if it ever comes on the market, then you get wind of it. Tell me. Because I wouldn't let anybody else sell it. That has definitely got your name written on it. Yeah, yeah, it has. <laughs> Super. So what do you do for, uh, besides choirs, and now do you collect anything? I don't. It's an interesting question, that. Now, um, people have always said to me, in my sale room days... You know, what's been the cheapest things that you've, you've sold? And surely if something's going cheap, you want to buy it. Well, I think it would be professional suicide to buy something in your own room that was going cheap. But in my view, the cheapest things are paradoxically the most expensive things. So what I'm saying is that all the greatest and most expensive cars that we've sold at Goodings in the last 10 years, they would be appreciating faster than anything else. Nobody wants number two, do they? They want the number one. And the reason a car that's estimated at three to four million makes six million, because everybody wants it. Now, everybody for a few weeks will say, six million, too much money. But no, those same people will want that car if ever it comes back on the market. And then it'll be 10 million. Whereas the one that sells for 800,000, that's estimated at a million to a million and a half, why is it making 800,000? Well, it's probably because people don't want it. My tip to anybody, as far as your pocket will allow, buy the best. Buy the best if you possibly can, because you won't go wrong. The reason it's the best and the most expensive is because everybody wants it. All right, so Charlie, I want to thank you very much for taking a few moments, sharing your stories with us. I look forward to the auction. I look forward to your humor. I look forward to your wit. And it was nice meeting you, and I hope that you and I can be friends for a long time. Yeah, you wanted a delight to meet you, too, and I look forward to selling your car. Someday you might. Someday, maybe that yellow rolls right. You'll be the buyer, I'll be the seller. Okay. Hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgia Video and Cars. We are live here in Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Gooding Auction. I want everybody to tune in every week, 7 p.m. here to the Stunts Video on Cars for the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports. Be sure to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Like us on Facebook. Hey, guys, you got to put this show on your bucket list. Scottsdale, Arizona is the place to be. In the meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, and we'll see you next week at Minicums in Orlando. Eight days, 3,000 cars. Take care, everybody. Telling tales out of school, but there's a fella in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his can. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. They broadcast me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.